I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Ephesians uh, chapter 4 this morning, and we're, um, we're continuing through that. And as you do so, um, I want you to look at the screen and, and uh, see if you've ever been told to do this. Uh, what, you ever had someone look at you and say, grow up? <laughs> Wives, husbands, no nudging here, yeah. Um, yeah, sometimes it's not always in words, is it? Sometimes it's a look that means grow up, buddy. Uh, what are the connotations? Help me out with that. These two words, grow up, what are the connotations usually when it's, when it's said? Let's hear it. Negative. Okay, it's negative. It's not usually a nice thing, right? What else? Immature. Huh? Immature. immature. It's usually directed at someone who's acting immature. Anything else come to mind? Exasperation. Exasperation. Yeah, you kind of reach the end of your rope with this. You, you know, it's usually said, you know, not like, grow up, sweetie. It's usually like, ah, oh, grow up, you know, like that. Um, and you wouldn't say this. Yeah, Phil. Childish insincerity. Childish insincerity. Wow, what a great segue. He's not a plant, I promise you. Let, let me tell you where I was going with this, okay? So, um, so, so if, if there's a five-year-old, right, who has, who has uh, milk coming out their nose because they're laughing so hard, you, you may not say grow up, right? I mean, they're five. But if your husband's 27 years old and you're out to a Valentine's date at a restaurant and it's happening, that's where it's applicable, right? All of a sudden it's like, yeah, in this case, not so bad. In this case, bad. You know, grow up. Um, I still get told this uh, periodically. And uh, I, I just have one of those hunches I'm going to have it told to me probably till the day I die, which means I'm a person in process and, um, and needs to grow. Here's the reality, though. It's not just immaturity in terms of... Um, in terms of insincerity or in terms of childish behavior where there should be maturity, the reality is this. We all have the following. We all, we all have growth uh, areas, weaknesses, struggles. Uh, we feel trapped or fail uh, in, 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 some, in some different ways. And really those are all kind of labels in a way, if you will, on just sin. We miss the mark. That's what sin is. It's missing the mark. So we all, we all need to grow up, really, in some way, shape, or form. And so, those of you who don't have milk come out your nose at restaurants, you're not off the hook here, okay? You have other issues that are just more, a little bit more refined and maybe not as on the surface, but we all need to grow up in, uh, in, in some way, shape, or form. We kind of tend to resonate. This is a biblical line, but we all say this kind of thing, whether you're a church person or not. Um, I don't do what I, what I want to do, and I end up doing the very thing that I wish I wouldn't do. That's Paul in the book of Romans. I mean, guy that wrote much of the New Testament. And here he is struggling with sin, and we identify with that. Now, if left to ourselves, I, I, I put a couple of definitions in here for you. If left to ourselves, I think that we tend to either invest or we settle. And just look at the definitions in your notes. I'm not going to put it on the screen, but, but those who invest are doing this. They're investing in things or people that promise help or promise change. How much money goes into seminars? How much money goes into books? How much money goes into learning a technique or meeting with a mentor or, or being in an office of a psychiatrist? All to help you. I'm going to invest things that are promising me change. They'll promise me breakthrough. There's something about it that's been communicated and I'm buying the fact that this is going to help me grow up in this area. It may be a regiment or, like I said, a book or a seminar that's, that's caught on with people. Or people tend to settle. 
Instead of investing, instead of putting money into something or time and energy into something, they just say, look, this is the way it's always going to be. I am what I am. You know, it's kind of the, the Popeye mentality of living, I guess. And it's really actually hopeless. There's no more hope of change. When one settles, they just say, I guess this is just how I'll always be. I guess this is just how my spouse and I will always relate. I guess I will always feel on the outside of that in crowd over there. And there's a sense of hopelessness that, that pervades um, a person who's in that mode. I want you to, uh, I just told you to open to Ephesians. Uh, flip over to, to Colossians. We're going to start in Colossians this morning. And um, in Colossians chapter 2, just a few books over, there's a, there's a passage here that, that talks to us about growing up, and it's pertinent to what we're going to look at in Ephesians. Um, as it, it highlights some, some, uh, some variance between if we're left to ourselves in how we try to grow up in our own and how God wants to grow us up. Look at uh, Colossians chapter 2 and look down at verse 20. And I'm going to read out loud. You can follow along. It says this. If with Christ you died to the intimate, uh, elemental spirits of the world, talking to Christians here, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the, of, the, of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? There's a worldly way to grow up, and there's a way that God grows us up. Here are the regulations. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, and ascetism, which is uh, false humility, and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. I just remembered why I brought this in a different version. Listen to this, uh, I think, in the NIV. Starting in verse 22, These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based merely on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in, rest- in restraining sensual indulgence. Some of you can personally attest to this. That's exactly right. I tried so hard. I invested so much into this, and it didn't save my marriage. I worked so hard, I invested so much, and I still had that craving, that sinful urge, that thing in the closet that I've left there, and it hasn't gone away. Some of you have personal testimonies of, of growing up uh, on your own and, and seeing that that does not work. Now, what's true of individuals is true of churches. In other words, churches can grow up in, in ways that merely are based on human teaching and commands. Or they can grow up according to how God wants to grow them up. So as we talk this morning, we're really talking about how does the church come of age? How does the church grow up? And as we do so, it's pertinent, not for the sake of neighborhood Bible church, not for a pastor's conference, but for you individually, because uh, mind, mind you that the church is made up of you, of individuals, of believers, right? And so as we collectively grow up in Christ, we're also talking about, though, this is God's created order. And so there's, there's picture for how your family grows up. There's, there's an image here for how you are to, to grow up in Christ. The big idea that we're really still dealing with here uh, in this first part of chapter 4 is 
unity of the church. And in a way, Paul takes the spotlight and he moves it from a collective unity down to an individual uh, um, uh, spotlight, where where he's talking about now to each one, which is what he says in verse 7. The implications of this idea that he's talking corporately about unity, but also individually to unity, just a few thoughts. One is that God sees individuals and not just the crowd. God sees individuals and not just the crowd. He doesn't just look over a people. He, he knows and knew and called and named individual people. And not just some, but each one of us. The very hairs of our head are numbered according to the scriptures. Not only that, but all are called to mature into Christ. All are called to Christ-likeness. That means there's no varsity Christian team. Well, you're the paid varsity Christian, and I get to just kind of cruise along, and I'm representatively doing good if you're doing good. The Bible doesn't teach that anywhere. That means you're not off the hook, is what I'm saying. That means that, that you don't get to collectively rise with a team, with a body, and be okay. That means kids, if your parents are really, really godly, and they're doing amazing things for the Lord, you don't get to kind of cruise along on their coattails. And just say, well, my parents are, are really godly, so I can do whatever I want. No, we're all called to be Christ-like. And then finally, that the individual is important to the whole. I mean, doesn't that make sense? If we're, if we're a body, we're going to talk about the body a whole bunch here. So the individual is important to the whole. If I smash my pinky today, I don't go, well, it's just a pinky. I've got another one and tons of other body parts that are just fine. My pinky is throbbing like the cartoon, and I'm going, man, we've got to stop and figure this out. I'm hurting because my pinky's hurting. So that means there's no, there's no wallowing in, in the body of Christ and saying, woe is me, I'm not that important, I just fill in the blank. No, that's important. And there's also no hiding out in the body of Christ, where, again, 80% of the church is doing pretty good. I'm going to kind of just, kind of just cruise along. God sees every individual, and every individual is needed. You ever think that the person you meet on the street this coming week might be needed in our body of Christ? I mean, I really think that way sometimes. I've told people this before. I've bumped into people, and some people, like I said a couple weeks ago, I said, man, you need to stay at your church. Don't come to our church. I mean, I love what God's doing in your life. Praise God for that. How dare you yank that away from your, your on-the-decline congregation? I mean, what would happen to that prayer group if you weren't there? And he was like, oh, okay, yeah, that's kind of cool. But there's other people that I've said, you know what? You're disconnected from the body of Christ. You have amazing gifts. In fact, you have perspectives that our body needs. Do you know that we need you at our church? And they go, oh, really? Oh, interesting. But that's true, isn't it? That we're all needed if we're, if we're all a body. All right, here's a big idea for you uh, for the morning. As we grow up in Christ, we grow closer one another. I think it's in your bulletin. I don't think you have to even fill much out. Maybe a couple of words. We're keeping it easy for you. But you do get to draw this morning. So that's kind of fun. Um, Just back into Ephesians for a moment. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 is where we'll be kind of camping out here. And what I've done is taken this whole whole chunk of scripture, 7 through 16, we're actually going to break it up into two weeks. Um, otherwise, we may have been here well through two o'clock today. So we're gonna we're gonna break this up a little bit. Um, but really, verse one through sixteen here is all about church unity, um, and then we're dealing with with really uh, growth of the church as well. So as we grow up in Christ, we grow closer to one another. He just covered in the first six verses of this chapter uh, that Christians don't work 
for unity or to create unity. They're handed the football and they're called to guard it, to keep it, to eagerly maintain unity. Remember, there's one body, one faith, one spirit, one Lord, one God God and Father of all. We're we're called to eagerly maintain that unity, not rush around striving to to build unity like like that. God's going to do that. I want you to go ahead and draw um, on your on your uh, on your notes somewhere there a triangle. Okay, I want you to draw a triangle, and and at the points of this triangle, I want you to do this. I want you to write me and you at the bottom points, and I want Christ written up at the top. Now, as you draw this, you can see the illustration probably, but look at these two arrows on the screen. If, if you and I are our are, are starting point here, and by the way, don't you just agree with me that we're not hardwired and it's not easy to just get together with people. It just isn't. I mean, if it were, then every single person who ever walked into this church would just say, man, piece of cake. I just immediately was welcomed in. I felt totally roped in and all of that. But the reality is there are just barriers in our lives, aren't there? Some of that is this. Someone could walk in this door. I could say, hey, how are you doing? My name is Dave, and I'm so glad you're here. What's your name? Uh, where do you live? I'd start chatting with them. They could walk away from that and say, man, I was warmly greeted, and later I found out he was the pastor, and I just got roped in. Uh, the same exact words could come out of my mouth. The same motive, the same spirit could be there. And another person could say, man, I met this totally cheesy guy. He was completely superficial with me. He just kind of brushed me off and this, that, and the other thing. Same exact scenario, same motive there. Do you see that? But here's what might be happening. That person might be walking in with, um, with the fact that his old pastor was named Dave and something about in what I said totally reminded him of a completely negative church experience and he never shows up here again. Well, those are unseen forces to me. Those are unseen barriers. You guys see this. Even that couple that says, we were just drawn together and then they got married and then six weeks later, guess what happens? They start to get drawn apart, right? That's marriage. We drift toward isolation. That was one of the ideas that we talked about yesterday. Every marriage does. Every relationship does. So the fact is we, we have distance between us. I love the fact that in this building on most every given Sunday, we have people from all walks of life and many different ages are represented in this building. I love that. Many different kind of levels of spirituality are represented in this, in this building. I would venture to say, apart from Christ, we wouldn't be hanging out on Sunday mornings, right? We just wouldn't. I mean, I mean, there's too much difference. There's too much, you know, you guys would find a different pocket of people. But here we are starting here, and then watch this. Over time, as you grow closer to Christ, look at the arrow. That distance shrinks. Because we're both growing up into Christ. And the more that we grow up into Christ, the closer that we get to each other. Are we trying to superficially get close to each other? Ron loves bikes, and so I guess i got to start loving motorcycles and reading Harley-Davidson monthly. I, you know, I mean, that's superficial. That falls apart over time. Ron and I are, are completely different in a lot of ways, but he's a dear brother to me. And, and as I'm growing closer to Christ, um, unbeknownst to me uh, in the day-to-day, I'm growing closer to my brother Ron because Ron's pursuing Christ. And he's growing closer to Christ. Isn't that a cool picture? That's that unity. There's one faith. There's one Lord. There's one spirit. There's one baptism. And so we're growing into that one. That, that unity is going to happen. Now I want to read just the first part of what we're going to dive into today. And you can follow along. Ephesians 4, uh, starting in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. 
There's the each one. Now we're zooming into individuals, not just corporately. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. What on earth are you talking about, Paul? I mean, don't you read parts of Scripture and go, what is that all about? Now, we'll set that aside for just for a second. Look at verse 11. And he, gave the apostles and, uh, he, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that we are your blood-bought church and that you are building your church, even this morning as your word is being read and proclaimed in a public setting. God, I pray that you would uh, grow us up in you, that you would reveal to us, enlighten to us today what it is you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. This passage is about growth. We see a lot of different words that kind of jump out. uh, Equip, building up, until we attain, mature, manhood, full stature, those kinds of things. There's a lot of questions that it ought to raise for you. Um, but we're going to address really just three. How does God grow this body? How does God grow the church, His body? What does this growth? Uh, what, what does a grown body look like? And what are the results or the or the fruit of a mature body? Now let's deal really quickly with with verses eight through ten. This is a little bit of a uh, linguistic uh, field trip that Paul takes us on, just like a little brief excursion that we're going to talk about just briefly, and you'll kinda, you will kind of you can dive into that more on your own study. But essentially what he does is this. He quotes from Psalm 68, 18. And at the heading of that in my Bible, it says this. This is a psalm about God shall scatter his enemies. And the language that he's using here in that psalm and why he's calling it to mind is this. That Christ has gone and conquered the enemy of death and sin. And what he's wanting to say, I believe, right before he goes into talking about these leadership gifts that he gave to the church for growth, is that he wants to make it crystal clear that this is Christ's body, and it's Christ the the victor, the one who's giving out the gifts. He's a returning king, giving out gifts of spoil, and he's saying, this really is my body in the world. And I'm gifting my body, the church, accordingly. So how does a body grow? How does a church grow? There's something called the church growth movement that came on. I didn't do my, my research to know the year that it started. But there was a certain point in time when, and I've, I've kind of lived through all of this because I grew up in church. But there was a point in time where all of a sudden there were, there were whole seminars going and, um, and techniques and books and articles that were going out to uh, church leaders in particular that said, we want to teach you how to grow your church. Now, the growth church movement isn't a bad thing across the board. There were some principles in there that were fantastic, and that began to get uh, church leaders thinking in 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 a new way. So I think some good things came out of the church growth movement. However, while there were some great principles that came from that, there's also a sense that that some churches began to pursue things and get not only ahead of God, but completely away from God in how they were growing their churches. And so instead of allowing God to build his church, 
they began to build the church. And if men and women begin to build a church, ugly things start to happen. Now, growth is important. Healthy organisms grow. But if it's not according to the pattern of God, problems occur. Just listen to Colossians 2 again. You don't have to turn there. It says this, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. So there's a potential of being in a church and being disqualified. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head. Who's the head? Christ. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. It's important for a church to grow as God causes it to grow. The point being here, just because we can alter the growth process doesn't mean that we should alter the growth process. This guy's been looking for his neck since 1970. I mean, he just he can't even find it. That's unhealthy and unnatural, right? We can see that. There's a certain sense. I've got to get that off the screen. You guys are freaking out. There's a, you got, it's fun to watch you guys look at that picture. Um, by the way, I'm putting this together in the living room a few days back, and I had that picture up, and Meg goes, what is that? Um, there's a certain sense that you can walk into a church and you can see that, that going on right there. You say, yeah, this is, this is big. This is pretty excellent. But I'm not really sure that that's natural. I'm not really sure that that's, that that's been healthy growth going on with that. And those are good questions to ask, is not just to say, man, we can get bigger and bigger here. We can inject this and have this um, result happen. But we should stop and ask if we should, if it's the right thing to do. So how does God grow this body, this, this new humanity? He said he's taken two different groups, Gentiles and, and, and Jews, those who were close and those who were far away, and he's made one new man out of them. So how does God grow this new humanity? Our physical bodies give us clues to this. Let me take you back for a moment uh, to middle school or, or junior high. And some of you are like, that's pretty easy. I'm going there tomorrow. Okay, for those, that's pretty easy. But, but some of you have a little bit of a further distance to, to go back. Uh, without answering out loud, what was, what was great about junior high? What was terrible about junior high? I mean, there's, there's some pretty big, yeah, there's some pretty big discrepancies, right? There's, uh, junior high is one of those times when the haves and have-nots really start to, to kind of pull away. In a certain sense, in, in elementary school, a lot of times everyone's friends. And then right around middle school, so suddenly people you were friends with in fourth grade and everyone just kind of loved each other, uh, all of a sudden they're at odds and these, these divisions happen. Some of that isn't a bad thing. Some of that is the whole idea of growing up, becoming your own person, having ideas. But some of that can be very, very hurtful and very, very painful. I remember ditching my uh, Dukes of Hazard lunchbox for, for trapper keepers and feeling quite important with that. I used to play freeze tag and kickball, and all of a sudden in middle school, we hung out. I always wanted to do sports more, but that wasn't cool anymore, so we just hung out with people. Um, there's kind of the first faint sense of freedom that are kind of you know, cruising through the air in, in, in middle school, and it was so fun. I loved that. I loved being able to go further from the house and do different things that, that weren't allowed before. Topics like dances and deodorant and seriously uneven growth rates are, are common for, for middle schoolers to discuss. We're next door at an awards thing last week, 
And I leaned over to my wife. I said, this is, why, this is classic middle school. And on the stage is this tiny girl. She's the tiniest of girls. And she's standing next to a full-grown woman. They're both in the same grade. And I'm like, yes, that is so amazing. I mean, middle school is just awesome that way. Think about this. Jesus was a junior higher. Jesus was 12 years old, and we actually have a record of Jesus being 12 years old. There's a picture of Jesus. His family leaves, and he's sitting in the temple. And he's listening to the temple leaders, and he's also amazing them with his responses. Remember that story? And then later on in Luke chapter 2, it says this, And Jesus grew. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man, I want you to just write a few notes there. Mentally, he grew. He grew in wisdom. He grew in stature. Physically, he grew. He grew in favor with God. That's spiritually. And he grew in favor with man. And that's socially. You know why junior high is so hard? Because we're growing mentally, physically, spiritually, and socially. In a pretty rapid clip. And what I loved about junior high ministry for years and years and years is you'd be talking to a kid and sometimes a little child is talking to you. Sometimes an adult comes and is all of a sudden asking very adult type questions and sometimes no one's there at all. They're just blank stare like this. And you know what's happening? It's all in the same body. Sometimes it's all in the same evening. And I loved that. I thought, man, this keeps me on my toes. But that's because all these changes are happening and Jesus went through puberty. Jesus went through his middle school years. He was 12 years old at one point. God gives our bodies these gifts, these growth gifts, during this time of change. Hormones and reason and strength and stature and faith. These things, these things start to, to, to grow into us. The, the coming-of-age story of each of us brings about change, right? Mind changes. We move from concrete to abstract. Also, we, we, we begin to develop uh, individuality and reasoning and questioning. Those of you who are parents of middle schoolers, you're like, amen, brother. There's lots of questioning that goes on. Don't, don't always fight that. That's not a bad thing. This is part of the developmental process. There's also body changes. Amen, middle schoolers? Yes, Awkward side effects to this are that odd things are happening at odd times in odd places. I mean, this is purposeful, though. God said, I'm going to allow this to go on because I'm preparing you to be a woman. I'm preparing you to be a man. And it's a really exciting time, even if it's a creepy and scary time at the same time. <laughs> These hormones kicking in are, are growth gifts for us. There's also spiritual changes. Faith and doubt, submitting and rebelling testing truths that you once received as, as gold. And you just said, of course that's true. Mom and dad said it. Now you're going, really? And you're testing that. I would say this to you, uh, middle school students, parents of middle schoolers, grandparents of middle schoolers and high school and college age students. Part of the, part of the spiritual development of all of us is being allowed to voice these doubts, being allowed to, to voice these concerns and resist in the context of a loving family and a loving church youth group. Little side note, there was a study done several years ago and the, the article was called Graduating from Church. And Graduating from Church uh, talked about the alarming rate of students 
who left the church after they graduated high school. They graduated high school and never made it back to the church. And for me as a youth pastor, I was keenly uh, aware of that and, 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 um, and very much desiring to, to, to not have that happen. And what they found was this, that a majority of those who didn't abandon their faith were allowed to express and wrangle through their doubts. Isn't that cool? They were allowed in the context of a loving community to say, yeah, but I don't think that's really true. And if that squashed and said, how dare you ever question God's word? You just believe it. You can intimidate and you can, you can get them to perform, but guess what? They graduate from God at age 18. So those of you who are parents of not even close to yet middle schoolers, be forming this in your mind. There's going to come a day when everything you say isn't just championed as, wow, dad said it. Mom said it. It must be true. And when those days come, pray for God's wisdom. Listen to James 1 in light of parenting middle school and high school and college-age students. James 1, 2 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. The testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Man, these formative years of youth of, of, of people going through middle school and high school, it's so important to be able to give a, um, a give and take there and allow for those questions. Finally, there's social changes. Who am I in relation to others? Now, I want to take all of these mental, physical, spiritual, and social changes, and I want to apply it to the church body. God gave growth gifts to the body. In much the same way that, that at just the right time, He releases hormones in our body, we don't have any say in when that happens. We don't get to choose when we have a growth spurt or when we just hang out and just stay the same size. That's, that's supernaturally designed into us. And we just kind of get to see the results of that. The growth gifts that God gives to the body is that He, um, I mean, listen to some of these words once again. Equip the saints for work, building up the body, unity in faith and knowledge, mature manhood. Instead of a list of gifts here, like Paul does in some places in Scripture, instead of giving a list of the gifts, instead he gives a list of the recipients of the gifts. And you could kind of pair those up elsewhere if you wanted to. And instead of all members of the body, we get the leadership of the body. He doesn't list every last person. He goes right for the leadership. And he talks about those who are gifted for the sake of the whole community. Those in leadership are really gifted for the sake of the whole community. That's how it works. This is a little bit like um, the GM or owner of a football team who gave a head coach and an offensive coordinator and a defensive coordinator and a special teams coach for the sake of winning games. Those in leadership are mentioned. Now, there's still uh, ball boys, and there's trainers, and there's players on the team. None of those are even mentioned. But we would get the picture from that to say, yeah, we see that the, the, the whole goal of that is to win games. And there it is. The building up of the body is what's being talked about. But Paul mentions just the leadership. I want to take a little excursion here and discuss leadership for a moment. Because I think in our culture, I come across a lot of people. I can tell a lot of times when I first meet someone where their past hurts have been when they start asking about our church. If someone comes and in the first couple of minutes they want to know who handles the finances, how are the finances held? What kind of checks and balances do you have in place to make sure finances are handled? What's been the past hurt? They've been burned by leadership taking their money, not handling it well. 
If someone comes and immediately wants to dive into small groups and say, when you mention small groups, does that mean you're going to come in and try to control my life and be an overbearing person and do this and that? Does that mean that I have to now um, vote the way every single person does and we have to all form this way? What does that mean about small groups? What do you mean by that? Is this going to be psych, you know, uh, pop therapy, you know, to kind of counsel me through every last thing? What, What does that mean? Well, their past hurt has been that they've been in some unhealthy, possibly spiritually abusive small groups, right? I meet so many people who explicitly or implicitly really struggle with leadership. Well, really, we all do. I mean, that's just the bottom line. We all crave power. We all struggle for power in some way, shape, or form. But there are those who are, who are acutely um, aware of anything mentioned with regard to authority, leadership, submit, a direction, a vision. All those kinds of words sound really scary to a person who's been burned by that. So part of preaching through an entire book of the Bible like this is that we get to touch on different topics here and there that are really pertinent to how we relate to each other. And so we're going to take just a brief little aside on leadership. Here it is. Leadership is given by Jesus. Do you notice from this passage that it's given by the returning king? These gifts are given by the returning king for the building up of the body. Now, like any gift that's given, they must be received. God can give um, leaders, much in the same way a GM could give a head coach, and if no one receives that, if no one accepts that leadership, if no one submits that leadership, you'll just have a constant battle on your hands and it won't work out. So for some of you, you say, man, it's very, very easy for me to receive leadership in the church because I've just had that modeled well or the Lord's done a great work in my heart or whatever. But yeah, move on, piece of cake. There's some of you, this is a huge issue. And I would venture to guess this. For the sake of our church, for the sake of our local body, if this is an issue, if right now you're, you're feeling some things, I want you to deal with that. I want you to come and talk to me. I want you to come and talk to the elders. I want you to come and talk to Maybe you say, you're exactly the last person I want to talk to. You're the leader. So you know what I want you to do? I want you to go, I want you to, go to your, to your uh, circle of people in there, and I want you to say, look, I'm struggling with this. Counsel me in this. Some of you have under-shepherds that are over you in terms of, of community group leaders. Go to them and ask for prayer. Some of you know this is your issue, and you say, man, I've, I've, had, I've had, this is a really mature prayer request. I had someone come and join my leadership team one time. They looked at me in the eye, and I said, I always ask something like this. Is there anything else I should be asking you that I'm not asking you? But you know the answer. I mean, I really should be getting there. Gives them an opportunity to give full disclosure. This person looked at me and he said, I have a huge issue with authority. Huge issue with authority. Now, mind you, I had just shown him what I expect of everyone on our team. He was about to sign a covenant saying, this is the kind of above reproach lifestyle that I will uphold working around youth, under you. I said, okay, so you have a problem with authority. He said, would you please keep me accountable? If you see the slightest look, if you see the slightest nod off, if you see the slightest little you know, snarky comment that comes out of my mouth, would you keep me in check? Because that's a sin struggle area. Wow. That's totally different than just knowing you have a problem with authority, not saying it, and going and being a cancer to the rest of the team by letting those things seep out. And I said, I absolutely will. And we've just had a great relationship for a really long time. We're still in a relationship today. Given by Jesus. 
Secondly, it's given to train, prepare, and equip the church. We'll talk about this more later. But this is totally different from doing it all or clinging to it all. If you ever see a leader or if you're ever raised up to leadership and you really love doing something and you can't imagine giving it away because that would be a bummer because you wouldn't get to do it anymore, that's not real biblical leadership. Every leader in ministry is actually being raised up to build up the body. And one of the things that we are on the lookout for is others who can take our place. Other men that I can faithfully entrust to be, to be doing what's happening right now. Our community group leaders are challenged. As you are leading a group of people in a community group, be looking for those who, who share some of those same shepherding types of qualities. Be looking to, to raise up leaders. I would raise up interns to work myself out of a job. And several times I raised a guy, I, I worked with a guy to a point where he was done with his training. And I said, guess what, bro? I'm not going anywhere yet. So let's get you a job. Let's, and so we've sent him out. And then at just the right time, a guy was raised up and I was ready to move on. I was going to go start some college ministry and do something else. So the, the, the baton was, was, was passed on. You know how I knew to do that? It was modeled for me. Others had done that same thing for me. They, they just brought me along and they, they, kept, they kept nurturing me. So it's different from doing it all or clinging to it all. If you see a leader clinging to it all, that's, a, that's an unhealthy sign. If you see a leader doing it all, that's an unhealthy sign. If you have a perspective that says you're the leader, you're supposed to do it, that's an unhealthy sign. I'm walking with a high schooler 12 years ago, first week on the job. We're discussing some different things. I said, man, we're, we're, we're a group of six kids. You think Jesus wants to minister and save more than six kids? In Cupertino, this guy's like, oh, yeah. I said, you, you think there's probably hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids down the street at Homestead High and Fremont High, Monta Vista High? Yeah. You think they need the Lord? Absolutely. Are you convinced of that? Absolutely. But we better figure out, we better get on figuring out how to share the gospel with them, how to bring them into relationship with Jesus, huh? Yeah, Totally. So then I looked at this kid. I say, what are you going to do? What is your part in this? I mean, you're one of the six. There's only six of us right now. What is your role? And he looked at me without skipping a beat. And he said, you're the pastor. That's your job. So I got him in a headlock. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I just, I mean, after I picked up my job from the ground, I said, well, I know, I know where I need to get to work. I know where some issues are. That's a misconception. I began to explain to him, you know what my primary role is? is to build you up so that you do it. How many times a day are you on your high school campus? Uh, mostly five. You know, five, five times a day, that's good. Five times a week. How many times do you think they'll let me on, on your campus? How many hours a week do you think that? I mean, so it, it's, it's obvious. It became obvious to this kid. Oh, I get it. So it's not doing it all. It's not clinging to it all. Uh, thirdly, leaders are listed because they hold strategic positions for growth and they hold strategic positions for failure. Just like the coach and offensive coordinator and special teams guy hold strategic positions because their job is to build up the whole team, so it is with those in church leadership. Church leaders are mentioned because if, if they are growing in Christ, if they are sitting at the feet of Jesus and passing on what they see and modeling it, the community is blessed by that. If, however... They're wandering from Jesus. If they're allowing their life to get very stagnant, if they're undisciplined in how they study and how they live, the community suffers for that. 
And every single one of us, I would venture to guess, by close proximity or through the news, could recount a pastor who fell in moral failure. Who was picked off by the enemy in some kind of sexual sin, some kind of power sin, some kind of money sin. Those are the big three. And so people in positions of leadership are strategic, both for success and failure. Catch this, some are leaders, but all are ministers. That's the idea. Every single one of you, as a Christian, is employed with, given uh, gifts. And so you're all ministers. We are all ministers. It would be genuinely accurate when someone asks what you do to say, I'm a minister. Try it, it's fun. It's just a fun thing to say, because you just immediately get into a conversation with that. Um, It's true that we're all ministers. Some are leaders. Finally, Jesus is the perfect example of all these roles that we'll look at. Jesus is the example that we look to. He's the one that I look to as I say, how am I supposed to get up and preach today, Lord? What do you want me to say from this? There's a lot here. How do you want me to do it? And so looking to Jesus as an example. Do you feel unfit for the role of being a community group leader? Do you feel unfit to be a person who's teaching a marriage seminar. I promise you, everyone we saw on the screen yesterday had a fight with their week sometime in the last X amount of time. They struggled. And yet they were used of God. Briefly about qualifications, because some of you don't know this. Do you know that the qualifications for uh, biblical leadership are explicitly laid out in Scripture? They're explicitly laid out in Scripture. I'm going to point to you just, just to one. You don't have to turn there, but write down 1 Timothy 3. What's fascinating about these is this. When uh, we've, we've said this when we installed Kel and Jim as elders of this church. We said this isn't the good old boys club. I didn't really know Kel uh, that well before or Jim really that well before. These are men that we have seen meet the biblical qualifications of an elder. In 1 Timothy 3 passage, every single one of the qualifications except for one is a moral qualification. You know the only one? Able to teach. That's it. Now, there's a few others in, in, in other places, um, but they're, they're, they're moral qualifications. Here's what I would say to you who desire to be in leadership. And by the way, desiring the office of overseer is a noble thing. It's a good thing. I would love to see men and women raise up and use their gifts as God has called them. If you want to be a person who wants to initiate and lead in ministry... Here's what I would say. Learn to follow Jesus. Develop your inner life. Develop your inner life. There's a lot of techniques. There's a ton of books in Christian bookstores and at Barnes and Nobles on techniques for leadership. You could memorize them all. You know what? Throw it away. Honestly. This is a spiritual work that we're doing. It's a spiritual work. He chooses the weak to lead the strong. We just sang that line. That's either true or it isn't. And so are there some good techniques? There are. There there really are. But that's so, so far down the road. It's so secondary to developing the inner life. Um, Secondly, I want to to point this out. Assorted leaders have differing roles, but the same gift or the same goal. 1 Corinthians 3, 6 says this. I, it's Paul talking. I, Paul, planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. Do you see the difference between the disgusting bodybuilder guy and, 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 and a normal, healthy, growing body? 
Those, those who, are, who are getting this distorted, those who are getting this skewed and starting to manufacture this man-made body are those who are talking so much about their leader and who influences them. And if that's a name other than Jesus, that's a problem. You know what's starting to happen? They're getting disconnected from the head. Now when you start to divide over my particular teacher, whether that's a podcast, an author, or a speaker, and I'm dividing with that, that begins to get cultic. And all of a sudden, we have something going on that isn't biblical. That person isn't giving the growth. That person's a little gardener watering. You don't look at a person like a grandma watering her plants. You don't go, wow, can I have your autograph? You just don't. You just go, wow, that's neat. She's watering. It's a key part of it. It's a strategic part of it. You don't water a plant, it doesn't grow. But really, God gets the glory for any growth that goes on. Acts is a great book to read. It's kind of a biography of the church coming of age story. So you can read that and it flips through like a junior high yearbook sometimes. There's some really big highs. There's some really big lows to it. But you get to watch the church kind of coming of age in this, in this way. Let me roll through these uh, these. One, these specific leaders that are listed very quickly. Apostles and prophets, these were the foundation of the church. They were given by God to establish the church. See Ephesians 2.20, about a chapter ago. They were accompanied by signs and wonders to validate their message. Secondly, he moves on to evangelists. I just got off a meeting this week with a guy who's just clearly a gifted evangelist. We're all called to evangelize. We're all called to be witnesses for Christ in the world, unquestionably. But there are some people that you go, man, every time you open your mouth and share the gospel, I could say the same words, same tone, and be a lot funnier. And, and every single time you do it, people just respond. People just seem to come in droves when you open your mouth and share the good news of Christ. That's a person who has the gift of evangelism. There are some who are specifically called to be evangelists. You know what they do? They specifically go spread the message of the gospel to where it hasn't been preached yet. And some of you in this room might be evangelists and not know it. They're focused on speaking the message of the gospel. Finally, pastor, teacher, shepherd is how it reads in some of your uh, translations. Pastor teacher is to care for the flock. You care for the flock by, by feeding it, by protecting it, by leading it, and by laying down your life for the flock. And I would, I would add to that this, that as a shepherd, if you have to move tomorrow to a different city and you're looking for a church, you look for a shepherd or a team of shepherds that are pointing you to Jesus and say, He's the shepherd. He's the good shepherd. That's the one who's really laid down his life for your soul. That's the one who's really going to guide and care and feed you uh, the, the best way. If, if it's a person trying to do all that for you, by the way, we would I guarantee you, we would never grow bigger than this if it was all up to me to be caring for you. And, mind you, I'd be failing miserably. Because I don't sit down with each one of you every single week and dive into your marriage and say, let's apply the gospel there and see how you're doing. And how about your work ethic? And how's that going? And how's this praise going? I, I don't do that. I couldn't possibly do that. Praise God for the Holy Spirit, right? And that's Jesus shepherding us along. And there are those of you who just give great testimonies. I love it because what I hear is that's the shepherd's staff just cracking you on, you know, kind of gently on the, not cracking, that's a little harsh, uh, nudging you on the side of the head going, no, 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 don't go that way. 
And, we, and the way it comes out in story is this. You know, I was going along, and, and something inside me, I think it was the Holy Spirit, said that this is wrong. Don't do this. I was about to open my mouth and get defensive, and I just something inside me just stopped, and I, and I didn't say anything. That's the Holy Spirit shepherding you. Pastors and teachers are to be examples and instructors. They're to teach by precept and by lifestyle. Listen to Hebrews 13.7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. We are to speak the word of God. There's something powerful when the word of God is read out loud and proclaimed and taught publicly. But not only that, they not, not only spoke the word of God, uh, but consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Do you see that leaders aren't just to be speakers? If all I ever did was speak, 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 and then as soon as I was done, I walked through that room back to my holy chamber and I prayed for you. And you're like, man, who was that masked man? I mean, and you never knew what I, what I was about. You never were close enough to say, man, he talks a lot about laying down his life for his wife or about, about uh, giving generously in the community or about doing these different things. But if you never saw that in my life, the teaching would be, I, I would think, fairly shallow. There's something really powerful about being up close to a person and saying, I hear the words that he speaks and I see the lifestyle that he has, and I'm going to imitate that. That's where Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Was Paul perfect? Of course not. But what he's saying is this, that triangle. Come on, let's get on it. Let's get on this journey to the celestial city. Come with me, let's go. And you get to watch both words and lifestyle interact. I would say this, and I don't know if you think about this very often, but I do. I actually wrote a... Facebook post this week because I was studying this passage and I just acted on it. Every single Christian is indebted to those who are pastor teachers or are pastor teachers to them. Every single Christian who has had... Now, you could look at that and say, yeah, but you don't know. I mean, this, this one was really flawed or this or that. But every single one of us, there are amazing books that are out, podcasts that are out, uh, teachers that are out. Some of you have sat under, under godly teaching for years and years with different people. You're indebted to those people. They have been dripping truth into your life and hopefully by example as well in such a way that you go, man, I don't even know why I'm like this way, but I think it's just that it was modeled to me. I wrote one of my San Jose Christian College professors this week. I just said, I want you to know, I think about how you say things still to this day. Thank you so much. I never once have thought, man, I want a refund from my tuition at San Jose Christian College. That's a good sign. We don't have tons of time to dive into this, but what about non-leadership gifts? Let me just say this. All are gifted. Some are more prominent than others. Here's the way of the gospel. Here's the way of Jesus. Catch this. Those that are seemingly trivial, the unseen are actually the most vital. Isn't that just like God to turn everything upside down? Those who are on stage uh, versus those who are unseen, which one's more vital according to the scriptures? It's the ones that are unseen. I would take the, I would take the heart as a great example. I was wrestling around, snuggling with my, uh, how old is she? Six-year-old. I had, my, I had my ear right up against her chest, and I heard her heart beating. We never see our heart, we never think about our heart, until we get a sharp pain near our heart, right? Pretty vital organ, but we never, like, just give praise to the heart. Well, Valentine's Day is tomorrow, never mind. <laughs> Take that back. All must stay connected for life, vitality, and effectiveness. If my arm is sitting across the room from me, it's a problem. 
right? It could be a super gifted arm. It could have a sweet tattoo. It could be really ripped. But if it's sitting over there, it does me no good whatsoever. So you doing your, you doing your gifts, you expressing your gifts, but say, yeah, we don't really belong to anybody. We don't belong to the church. We don't belong to other Christians. That's a problem. That's unbiblical. Don't buy that. You know what? It's pretty easy to just be an arm because everyone digs the arm. We all talk about the arm. And you, and you could sit over there as an arm and go, man, kneecaps, they're the worst. So arrogant. And, and, you know, there's just, there's an issue there. I'll tell you how you grow up is you get to learn, you, you, you learn to work with shoulders and kneecaps and a mouth that sometimes bugs you. That's part of body life. That's part of family life. A great quote here is this, that believers, this is from a commentary, believers, one, boasting over their gifts, two, comparing one gift to another, or three, defining the exact characteristics of each gift is often counterproductive. The New Testament does not dwell on these issues. The reality of a called, gifted family of ministers is the issue. Believers are called to service, not to privilege. I would say this, if you don't know what your gift is, if you don't know how you're gifted, jump in and start serving. God will steer that moving car. You join the band and everyone in the band says, we love you, brother, you've got a great heart, you need to not be in the band. You're not musically gifted. It's pretty simple. I love it. There's a person recently who said, I want to help out at the church. I'm gifted in these areas, but I'm willing to clean, set up, do whatever is necessary. That's gold. That's gold. A lot of the people who ever came and said, I want to teach youth, I'd say, that's awesome. Praise God for that. Come an hour early with me next Thursday night and help me set up the room for Bible study. In 10 years of having people approach me, 9 out of 10 of those, I never saw again and they would avoid me at church. The 1 out of 10 that came and helped me set up church, I mean set up chairs, one became an intern and eventually took my job as a high school pastor. He said, I'll do whatever. I'll set up chairs. He just had the right heart. He was there to serve the community and understood that the more you grow in leadership, the more base you become. Where if you're the ultimate, you take on the servant's towel and you're washing feet. Band, I want you to come on up right now. We are going to continue the rest of this next week. Part of the beauty of doing a two-week message that was meant to be one is you can cut it off wherever it is. Uh, you cannot possibly miss next week or else you'll not get the full flow of all of this. You got very little application today. Um, you, got to, you got to hear kind of the start of things. Uh, come back next week and what we'll do is we'll kind of tie up some of the loose ends here um, as to what was going on. Let me pray and then we will, um, we will continue in, in worship. Father, thank you so much that you have... blessed us with unity. I praise you, God, that the Scriptures clearly teach, and by way of the body even, that there are many parts, but they all belong to the same body, such that we all have care for the vitality and well-being of this body. Would you enlarge our vision at Neighborhood Bible Church to have this include biblically faithful communities all around our area. That they are part of our body. We're we're the church of San Jose. And God, would you keep us connected to you, the head? We confess freely today that we are peons and unable to accomplish anything of any value 
for any length of time apart from being connected to you. Out of you is what flows our very purpose and our direction. Out of you, you produce and raise up shepherds who have a like heart to you that will lovingly lay down lives, feed and care for a flock as we strive together after you. We praise you that you celebrate unity amidst diversity and that there are a variety of gifts and yet one common goal. We pray for our part in urgently maintaining unity and we trust you God for your part in giving us that unity we love you we do affirm that you're indescribable that were we to have a thousand years in all the words we we couldn't paint an accurate picture of who you are God, keep us hungry to keep striving after you and getting to know who it is that you are. Forgive us for ever imposing our man-made ideas of who you are. Replace falsehood that we thought you were with the truth of who you are as you reveal yourself to us. And all God's people said, Amen.